Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Your memory is too short when it comes to terrorism. We must never forget the tragedies of the past or it will happen again. Now, today I'm talking about this because we just had the 11th anniversary of 7-7. Do you even remember what 7-7 is? Well, hold on and I'm about to tell you. But first, let me tell you what some philosophers said about this concept. George Santianis, who was a Spanish philosopher, said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And Edmund Burke, a British statesman, said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So I know what you're thinking. Um, you wish you could forget the haunting images of 9-11 and other terrorist attacks. But in fact, too many people, at least, <laughs> at least in America and probably in other countries, except for in cities other than London, have indeed forgotten what 7-7 is. I have recently been talking to people about it because it was coming up and then it was and now it's a little past. And people say, what? What's 7-7? Well, 7-7, um, this is the 11th anniversary of it. It was July 7th, 2005. And uh, if you do remember this, great. Well, it's not great. It was a tragic event, but great that you're remembering things from the past and therefore will be more concerned about not letting it happen again. But if not, you're not alone. Many people look at me like, huh? When I mention 7-7, what's that? Well, let me tell you about what it is. Um, because obviously London's 7-7 being like our 9-11, uh, America's 9-11 is very significant. In fact, it was uh, the country's first ever Islamist suicide attack. What it was, was on the morning of Thursday, July 7th, 2005, four Islamist extremists detonated four bombs. They each detonated one. Um, three of them were on the London Underground trains and one of them was on a double-decker bus in Tavistock Square. 52 people were killed, and over 700 more were injured. And the irony, before I go on and tell you a little bit more about this attack, the irony, and, and what makes it even more, more tragic in a way, is that the day before 7-7, London Londoners were in the street celebrating the fact that it had just won its bid to host the 2012 Olympic Games. That was like the happiest time that Londoners had had in a long time, maybe since the end of World War II. And then, you know, breaking through their happiness, the next day, 7-7 happens, the worst Islamist suicide attack. You know, it's it, this kind of goes to that, um, oh, that phenomenon that perhaps you have experienced yourself or you've thought about, and that is that oftentimes when we've had a great victory, uh, it gets marred by something terrible happening the next day or right after. 
Well, getting back to what the 7-7 seven, seven attacks were that we need to never forget, there were four suicide bombers, and um, they were three of them were British-born sons of Pakistani immigrants, and one of them was a convert born in Jamaica. So we have Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, who was 30. He worked as a learning mentor at a primary school. He had a wife and a young child. Then there's Shazad Tanweer, he was 22. He lived with his mother and father and he worked in a fish and chips shop. Jermaine Lindsay was 19. He had a pregnant wife and a young son. Hasib Hussein, who was the one who detonated the bomb on the bus, uh, he lived with his brother and sister-in-law. Now, um, you would think, at least for Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, who is thought to be the ringleader, that, you know, well, for all of them, in fact, who had wives or children, you would think that they wouldn't do something like this because they would want to be around for their families. And particularly with Mohammed, he was a learning mentor at a primary school. Um, he had a good job. Uh, you know, you wonder, you wonder um, why, what could have driven him to do this? Uh, well, in fact, you don't have to wonder too far because um, two of them bombers made videotapes saying why they became what they called soldiers. So we had, and these uh, videotapes were broadcast by Al Jazeera uh, after, of course, the attack. And, um, but now these videotapes have been edited, so we have to be somewhat careful in uh, interpreting them. But in a part that presumably was whole, uh, Mohammed Siddiqui Khan said, uh, I and thousands like me are forsaking everything for what we believe. Our drive and motivation doesn't come from tangible commodities that this world has to offer. Our religion is Islam obedience to the one true God and following the footsteps of the final prophet messenger. And then he went on. Um, you know, of course, the thing is that this is his interpretation of Islam. And in fact, uh, the people who become terrorists are misinterpreting Islam, taking out the phrases, the sentences, the paragraphs that they want, and interpreting them in the way that they want as a way to be able to use it to express their rage about other things in their lives. It's interesting that he says um, it doesn't come from tangible commodities. I mean, in fact, for some of them, it does come from tangible commodities that they don't have, that they aren't able to get. So it's interesting, you know, psychologically, when you say you don't want something, it often means, I mean, that's the thing that he's, he thought of to say that he didn't want. And so it would often mean that, in fact, that is part of the problem. That is part of his motivation. And then he goes on to say, your democratically elected governments continuously perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world, and your support of them makes you directly responsible, just as I am directly responsible for protecting and avenging my Muslim brothers and sisters. Until we feel security, you will be our targets, and until you stop the bombing, gassing, imprisonment, and torture of my people, we will not stop this fight. We are at war, and I am a soldier. Now you too will taste the reality of this situation. Well, it's really uh, sad that um, obviously he believed that. He was a suicide bomber. He and the other three gave their lives 
for these uh, these motivations, these thinkings, or perhaps uh, at least they thought that that's why they were giving their lives. That's the problem. They all need to be on a psychiatrist's couch to understand what they're really feeling. Um, then we have another another one of the attackers who said uh, in a videotape, "What have you?" What you have witnessed now is only the beginning of a string of attacks that will continue and become stronger until you pull your forces out of Afghanistan and Iraq and until you stop your financial and military support to America and Israel. Again, these are this is the party line. Um, let me tell you some more about the attack that's kind of there are so many interesting parallels to subsequent attacks in America and elsewhere. Um, in particular, one thing that's interesting is how, in fact, this man who was thought to be the ringleader, Mohammed, um, had been investigated by police twice before 7-7. And they decided that they didn't need to continue um, putting him under surveillance. Does that ring a bell? Uh, kind of like Omar Mateen and many other terrorists who um, authorities have not kept on their radar. Well, again, we need to remember these attacks of the past in order to prevent them from happening again. <laughs> See, like that's, that's a great example of something that we should have remembered that in fact, um, that would have been a lesson, should have been a lesson uh, to other authorities like the FBI to in fact uh, not let people who uh, came on your radar screen totally go off of it. Well, let me tell you a story about uh, why I'm so particularly uh, concerned about 7-7. Um, first of all, I mean, you know, it is London. It is a country that America is, well, has <laughs> kind of ironic. Um, we've just celebrated July 4th, right, <laughs> where we left England and formed our new country. But in any case, we are still, we still have very close ties to London. And um, what hurts our friends hurts us. But this has special meaning for me in addition to that. Because um, my book, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted, was published on the one-year anniversary of 7-7. I, in fact, went to London for the launch of my book. I was at the memorial service. I was interviewed there by the media. And uh, I talked about how we need to prepare for living under the threat of terrorism by thinking of it as a marathon. And I still talk about this today because this is still what we need to do. And what we need to think about is how we have, just like for a marathon, if you were running in a marathon, what would you do? You would start uh, months and months before to prepare yourself physically, uh, getting stronger, eating well, taking vitamins, sleeping well, all the stuff that you have heard of uh, before. And you'd be practicing running, you'd be doing shorter runs, you'd be, you'd be doing runs under various conditions, uh, and so on. And you'd also be preparing yourself psychologically. You'd be gearing up to want to win, or at least to want to do really well. You'd be psyching yourself up. And today, the fact that it's not just about 7-7 and 9-11 and the countless other 
terrorist attacks that are happening all over our world. It's like nowadays you wake up, you look at the news, and it's like, where's Waldo? Where's the latest terrorist attack? They're happening on, on an everyday basis. And, you know, to some degree it was happening every day before, but a lot of times it was happening in, on very uh, low level or in countries that we don't hear that much about. But now the sound of this uh, is louder and louder. We're hearing more and more about it. It's happening in countries that we know more about, hear more about, feel closer to, and they're getting worse, killing greater numbers of people and just being devastating in other ways, things, things that would have shocked us um, or <laughs> things that wouldn't have shot. We, we were getting a bit desensitized to it too, and that we have to watch out for, which is another reason why I'm calling upon you to not forget the tragedies of the past, or it will happen again and again and again. So um, let me tell you, when I, when I wrote the book, um, one of the things that I did, of course, I mentioned all the, uh, I described all the 52 people who died and who they were and made them human, made them personal, um, you know, so they weren't just a number. And I also met with um, two families in particular, let me read you a little bit um, about the family who lost Carrie Taylor. Carrie Taylor was a 24-year-old girl who was a victim of the attack on the Circle Line tube train near Aldgate Station. And her father shared his story with me. Uh, he wasn't sure if he believed in, believed in the afterlife until after Carrie died. And now he and the rest of her family see signs of her every day. But let me tell you how he talked about what happened on 7-7. I'm reading from my book, Coping with Terrorism. On 7 July, John was at home in Bellerique, Essex, after Carrie and her mother left for work. He turned on Sky News and heard about what they were then describing as a power surge on the underground. They didn't know at first what it was. They, you know, they, it was sort of, they were relatively innocent and I never expected such a huge uh, terrorist attack. He was concerned about his wife and daughter being late to work because of this power surge on the underground. So he tried to ring them up. About an hour later, after not being able to reach them, and the shocking news announcing that it had been a terrorist attack, John's attempts to get through the jammed phone lines became more intense. Finally, he was able to reach his wife, who had also been trying to call their daughter, with no success. They began making what eventually turned into hundreds of phone calls to hospitals, helplines, the police, and various organizations, while trying to console themselves with hopes of her being one of the walking wounded rather than a fatality. By about 5 p.m. when Carrie's friend called to inquire why she had not shown up to meet for dinner as they had planned, the Taylor family really began to worry. They could not sleep that night. The next day they traveled to London and checked the four or five hospitals where victims had been taken. Perhaps she's unconscious or in surgery, they hoped. They returned home and manned the phones. They called burn units to see if there were any patients there who hadn't been identified yet. 
With each day, the Taylor family's phone calls became more frantic. Carrie's friends put up photographs of her all around London. A liaison officer was assigned to the family. The authorities took Carrie's dental records, which proved to be of little value since her perfect teeth hadn't necessitated any dental work that could identify her. Fingerprints could not identify her either. DNA samples were gathered. After three or four days, the family realized that something was really wrong. The waiting was pure agony. We didn't know whether Carrie was on that train. That day, she told her mom she was going to stop off at the chemist. But after 10 days, the news they dreaded arrived on their doorstep. DNA had identified Carrie as one of the fatalities of 7-7. Now the family is led to assume that on that day, she got the train after the one she usually takes. She got the ill-fated train. I hope that gave you chills because um, it gave me chills and I wrote that and talked with the family and it never stops giving me chills. And these things, these stories should never stop giving you chills either. We can't lose our humanity. We can't become desensitized to these tragedies, particularly as they're becoming more often. Uh, now we've come to the part of the program where I answer letters and emails that get sent in to the terrorist therapist. There's a letter here from Alice. She says, I've lived in London all my life, and I remember 7-7 only too well. I can't believe how much has changed since then, and not for the better. There are more immigrants than ever. The streets are more dangerous. And now we even have a Muslim mayor. I'm afraid we're going to have more attacks and even worse ones than 7-7. I can't afford to move to another city or country. What should I do? Well, yes, Alice, uh, I was pretty shocked to hear that Londoners had elected a Muslim mayor, especially after 7-7. I mean, uh, this, is, this is the 11th anniversary, but that shouldn't be, our memory shouldn't be that short. Uh, the population is changing in London, and that's what's happening all over the world. Now, I was also pretty shocked when uh, Barack Hussein Obama was elected president. Hopefully your mayor won't run your city into the ground like Obama has done to our country. He has consciously or unconsciously made America much more vulnerable to terrorists. But we should give your mayor a chance. The jury is still out. Uh, in fact, he had us, he was at the memorial and he has said, he has at least voiced his concerns about uh, making sure that these kinds of things don't happen again. He said, as mayor, my first priority is to do everything possible to prevent a tragedy like this from happening again. By strengthening the bonds between Londoners from different backgrounds and focusing on real neighborhood policing, we are making it easier for people to speak out and help root out and prevent radicalization and extremism. Now, you know, one could say, and it's possible, and one can hope, that in fact, the, the fact that he is Muslim would um, help him, if his heart is in the right place, to um, indeed get more cooperation and um, amongst 
people of all religions and um, and get the city to work more together, as he said, by strengthening the bonds. Um, he attended the service, uh, the the memorial, um, and he uh, he laid a wreath at the at the memorial, and his he wrote there was he had a handwritten message that said. 11 years on, we must never forget those who lost their lives on 7-7 or the unity Londoners showed in the face of the attack. Um, now, one thing that was beautiful, and again, we can only hope that this is a positive sign for the city, but which is, again, one of the reasons why it's important to have these memorials every year, but that really isn't enough. Every day, in a sense, should be a memorial, a remembering and an honoring of the people who died and a commitment to never, to let it never happen again. So what was, what was um, interesting is that the end of, at the end of the service, the memorial service this year on 7-7, um, the people who had come were given a single yellow or white rose that was gifted to them by members of the Muslim community. And each one had a handwritten peace message. And it's part of what's called a heart-to-heart -heart initiative. Uh, and it was replicated across London. And when the media interviewed um, one of the people who was there from as part of this gesture, uh, she said, we came here hoping to meet with people who may or may not have resentment towards Muslims, either because of 7-7 or the current situation. And rather than hiding away, we wanted to make this gesture. Well, let's hope that there are more gestures like that in London and all over the world. I mean, that's the kind of thing that needs to happen. The Muslims who aren't radical Islamist terrorists need to come out and do these kinds of acts without fear of reprisal and um, and and in a heart-to-heart -heart, uh, way. So Alice, um, meanwhile, I suggest that you uh, keep yourself safe and you follow my general uh, advice, what I said on the one-year anniversary of 7-7 when I was in London promoting my book, um, uh, Coping with Terrorism Dreams Interrupted. Um, I was trying to give advice, and this advice advice is, is, has become more and more important with each year as the terrorist attacks increase, and that is uh, in the general sense of, of preparing like you're in a marathon. We are in a marathon. Terrorist threats are probably not going to disappear in our lifetime. Hopefully we'll be doing more to curb the actual attacks, but the threats that have been going on for countless numbers of years are not going to stop. So you have to make yourself physically and psychologically stronger to be able to survive and thrive and follow your dreams despite hearing these attacks in the media every day. Well, thank you all for listening. You've been uh, listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. On this show, I put terrorism on my couch. I take it out, the scariest monster under the bed. I take it out and analyze it on my couch to help you feel more in control of your destiny and safer, 
and able to follow your dreams.